Father, thank you uh, for your graciousness, for the way that you love us, for the way that you've given yourself to us. This morning as we are in our watch parties or at home watching the service, or even if it's later on, we're not catching the live service, but we're watching later on, I just pray a blessing over the people who are participating with our services today. Uh, I, I pray a particular um, uh, a material and wealth blessing over all of us. I pray that, that just as pastor says often, that the wealth of this world would pass through our hands and become a tool for us to utilize in the growing of our influence as a church, but not only that, the growing of the influence of the kingdom of God, because that's what you've called us to do. You've called us to make disciples, to expand the kingdom all over the world. And I, I thank you and I praise you that right now, all over our community, people are giving, people are in prayer, people have been reading their Bibles and preparing to hear something from you this morning. I pray this morning that you would bless um, what I'm about to say through the sermon. I pray that you would um, change our minds about how we approach you uh, uh, and, and maybe change our attitudes about prayer and how we would uh, come to the throne room of God as we communicate and speak with you. Father, this morning, bless our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to grab my iPad and we're going to get running this morning. Um, I uh, was preparing this week and thinking about what the short stories, the parables of Jesus are all about once again. And I was just reminded, just like I was reminding you guys last week, I was reminded once again that the parables, uh, the short stories of Jesus are all used in a very specific way. Jesus doesn't just throw out these stories to be interesting or to use kind of a different technique of teaching. He's not trying to be flashy or showy. He has some specific purposes in, in using these stories. Um, I was just watching uh, uh, The Chosen, which is a, uh, it's a crowdfunded project where it chronicles the life of Jesus um, and his disciples. And I was struck again by how they approached how Jesus used the parables. When he's preaching and, and teaching to crowds, he's giving them these really short stories to, to engage their minds, to begin to think differently about what the kingdom of God really is going to look like. Oftentimes, the people don't understand right away. They're, they're clueless as to what he's saying. And I think that's a part of his purpose is later on as their, as their minds and their hearts become open to what God's saying, as the Holy Spirit begins to illuminate them towards truth, then they'll go, oh, that's what Jesus meant when he said that. And I think that that's another one of the things that Jesus is trying to do. But focal or most important, maybe primary to what Jesus is trying to do with the parables is he's trying to talk about the kingdom of God. He's using these stories um, as a device to get our minds thinking differently about what the kingdom of God really is. And, and why that's important is because it, sh it should change the way that we think. It should change the way that we act. Or it should change the way that we view God in some way. It should change our attitudes about who God is and how he has chosen to operate within the world, using each one of us to be conduits of the kingdom as we become little mini temples of God's presence, bearing his image all throughout the earth. And so this morning, as we talk about prayer, um, I think it's really interesting that, that Jesus uses a short story to talk about prayer, because anytime I've thought about prayer or talked about prayer or been taught about prayer, it's always very clinical. 
There's a very clinical lesson that follows. This is what you should do. This is A plus B equals prayer. You know what I'm saying? Like these are the things that make prayer up. And, and not that those things were bad. Those gave me a frame of reference to understand how I should pray in my own life. I'm not like knocking those things. But I find it really interesting that Jesus gives us a story about prayer and not just like a, you know, a, a lesson or rhetorical lesson about what prayer should or shouldn't be. Because for Jesus, prayer was very imminent in a very real reality in his life. It wasn't just a theoretical thing that he would be really good at sometimes and not so good at sometimes like you and I are. Rather, it's a thing that he was really focused on. In fact, the source of his um, his peculiar understanding of when was his time or when was not his time to go to the cross, I think stems from prayer. And if you've been in our discipleship process for any time, you understand that that is one of the amazing things that the Holy Spirit communicates uh, back and forth with Jesus from the Father to him, that this is what Jesus is supposed to be doing today or the next day or the next day. And Jesus has a peculiar understanding of what he should be doing, when he should be doing it, how he should be doing it, because he's so um, invested in his prayer life. And so the disciples are actually curious about that. And listen, these are guys that know how to pray. I mean, they grew up in a Jewish tradition that set out like particular times during the day that they should pray. It's not like they've never heard of prayer or don't know how to pray. Every morning when they'd wake up, every morning when they'd go to bed, they'd recite the Shema, which is like the uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four um, through six. And it's it's like this incredible uh, prayer that we're supposed to pray, uh, calling out God's oneness, his goodness, and how he wants us to be. Like, it's not like these guys didn't know what prayer was. Yeah, they were fishermen. Yeah, they might have been, you know, not in the religious establishment or whatever, but it didn't matter. They were still good Jews and they understood how to pray. Yet they saw something different in what Jesus modeled to them. Jesus modeled kind of another level of communication with God, another level of prayer. Oftentimes we see Jesus going off by himself alone to have who knows how long, but I mean, long enough that the disciples, you know, realize, you know, where's Jesus? <laughs> well, he's off alone again praying. That's how often he did that, that. The disciples took note and his prayer was so powerful and effective that it drove what he would do. They took notice of this. And so they asked him at one point, uh, Jesus, how, how do you how do you pray? What, what does your prayer look like? Let's look at that in Luke chapter 11, verses one through four. One day. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, these words may sound familiar. This is the Lord's Prayer. It's a little bit of a truncated form here that Luke gives us. We have more of the expanded form um, in the beginning of, of Matthew. Matthew, I think it's chapter six, where Jesus gives us the, the Lord's prayer kind of in a fuller extent. But that's exactly what he's doing here is he's giving them not only a structure. Yes, he's giving them a structure because we're not just supposed to say these words and, and, and not mean them. He's giving us a structure where we're supposed to praise God first uh, or we can ask for our, the things that we want after we've asked for God's will in our life. Um, we want to ask for forgiveness of sins. Of course, there's a, there's a, a way in which God wants us to pray here where we're not just coming to him with our requests only as if he's like a genie or whatever. Uh, instead, we're supposed to take time to praise him, to acknowledge him, to ask for his will. And then we go into our request as well as what we need as far as forgiveness 
and then how we might not be led into temptation. He gives us a structure of prayer, but also the words. He gives us the very words. And I think that Jesus even wants us to pray these words every day. Um, I mean, he certainly wants us to be a light shining on a hill every day, to be the light and salt of the world. He certainly wants us to be the embodiment of the Beatitudes every single day. He certainly wants us to not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry for itself. Right now, I'm quoting things from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Certainly, he wants us to be those things every day. Why wouldn't he also want us to pray this every day? Because what this does is aligns our hearts with what God is trying to accomplish in the world as we spread his kingdom through the way that we image him. But having given them a structure, Jesus now works on their hearts by telling them a story about prayer. Again, this is what I assume teaching should be. Here's what prayer is. Here's how you do it. Here are the words that you say. But Jesus goes a step further and now begins to tell us a story to really um, evolve our minds, change our minds to think about what prayer actually should be. Now, I'm reading from the New King James Version on purpose right now because I think they translate a specific word really interestingly. So I'm going to read from this on purpose as kind of a teaching tool right here. So let's follow along here. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. Jesus is now going to tell a story. I'm reading from the New King James. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him, give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now, I want you to think for a moment, what does this parable mean? What do you think this short story is trying to convey? In fact, go ahead and write in the comments, what do you think this short story is trying to say? What do you think the meaning of it? Because again, the short stories, the parables of Jesus all have kind of a a central point, central idea, and they're often very simple. So what is Jesus simply trying to tell us as he employs this story about prayer? Verse eight, one more time. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now, as you're thinking about that, maybe as you're writing down something in the comments, I would imagine that you're going to write something along these lines. We are to pray and ask what we need of God. If he doesn't answer our prayers, we just keep on praying with persistence and with tenacity and with boldness until God answers our prayers. I'll tell you right now, that's probably what I would have walked away with if I had only read the New King James Version. But is this really what Jesus is trying to teach us? Is our tenacity the point of Jesus's short story? And that's an important question we need to ask ourselves. We can't just read these stories and go with our most simple explanation all the time, because maybe all the time our simplest explanation is not really what Jesus was trying to say to his original audience. So let me read this verse again, verse 8, in a couple of different translations to see if we can get closer to the heart of what Jesus is trying to say. Let's look at the ESV. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, 
he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Wait, whoa, whoa. That was a different word. Interesting. Let's keep going. Let's look at the God word, God's word translation. I can guarantee that although he doesn't want to get up to give you anything, he will get up and give you whatever you need because he is your friend and because you were so bold. Hmm. Interesting word choice again. Bold. Okay, let's keep going. Let's look at the NIV now. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Okay, I'm super confused now. What? Who's right? What's the word supposed to be? How do I approach this text appropriately, correctly, if if the New King James says this thing and the ESV says this thing and God's word says this thing and the NIV says another thing, where do I go from here? How do I understand the true point of the parable? This is why I started with the New King James because it's vital for us when we're doing Bible study to look at multiple translations to try to understand the truer meaning of the text. Because oftentimes when people interpret text, now there's whole committees that interpret these texts, whether it's the ESV committee or God's word committee or NIV committee, whoever it is, there's whole committees that have debates about how they should look at certain words. And it's important for us to look at multiple translations because if I only stick to one, I may be liable to misapply or misunderstand the true meaning of what Jesus is trying to say. Now, listen, don't be discouraged. There is a true meaning and there is a way to understand what Jesus was trying to say. What's critical to this passage is the word anadaya. The word anadaya is so important. See, the New King James Version and others translate this as persistence or boldness, which in our cultural context carries a very positive connotation. You're supposed to be persistent. You're supposed to bootstrap and pick yourself up and do everything on your own and be a self-made man. That is like Americanism 101. Like that is what you're supposed to be. Uh, it's what built this country is, is people bootstrapping and, you know, all that stuff. So boldness and, and persistence and tenacity are important things within our culture. But is that what the word anadaya means when Jesus speaks it? Because anadaya in the Greek actually carries a negative connotation. It's something more like what the NIV reads. Shamelessness, audacity, rude, annoying. That's more what's closer to the meaning. Just to, just to you know, uh, to, just to make sure that you believe what I'm saying right now. The thesaurus, lingua Graeci, is a research center in the University of California housing a digital collection of all surviving Greek texts from antiquity to the present era. Not just like biblical text, but all the ways that this word was used in ancient letters or in ancient writings. This database has 258 um, occurrences within their documents of the word anadiah, and every time the word is translated as something negative, shamelessness. So the NIV actually has the closest translation so far from what we've read, and the ESV is pretty close as well. Impudence is, is another good word, uh, but shameless audacity. That's certainly what the word is referring, 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 referring to. There we go. Not reforming to, referring to. And, and this is what Jesus is trying to point out, is that the man who comes to his friend to ask for loaves of bread is not just this wonderful example of what we're supposed to be, this, this persistent, tenacious person who asks things that are a little bit uncouth, but it's okay because we understand his persistence. 
what Jesus is trying to say is this guy's a little bit crazy. I mean, he's going against the social norms all, all the way against what decent conduct should look like or would look like. He's showing up at his neighbor's house and he's yelling at him to provide him bread while the man is trying to sleep. The point of the parable has nothing to do with our persistence or with our tenacity in persevering in prayer. That has nothing to do with that. Not because we haven't been heard or because we haven't been answered or even rejected. That's not the point of this short story. This short story follows a particular pattern that Jesus likes to employ. Again, this is why it's so vital for us to study what scholars have spent their life studying to understand what Jesus and the other authors of the Bible are trying to say, putting what Jesus said in his context to his particular day and how we can then extrapolate that to where we are now. That's why we should pay attention to scholars. They believe that this is a how much more pattern. Jesus is setting up a how much more pattern. Jesus says this often. He often uses hyperbolic language or a how much more pattern to convey a thought um, in a kind of a striking way. He says stuff like, cut your right hand off if it's causing you to sin. Pluck your right eye out if it's causing you to sin. He doesn't literally want you to do that. That's craziness. He doesn't want you to mutilate your body like that. But he's proving a point using exaggerative language to try and convey what he's actually trying to say to us. So this parable particularly uses a how much more pattern moving from the lesser argument to the greater one. So if a conclusion applies to the lesser case, then it applies even more in the greater case. So if a, if a friend will respond to a shameless request in the middle of the night, how much more will God respond to you? That's what Jesus is really trying to say here. Even if you're shameless and rude and uncouth, God will, God will so much more respond to you than a friend even would. Now, this is important. You should not read into the parable that anybody knocked on anybody's doors. Now, if you have Bible headings and you're looking at the Bible headings in your, in your text, it'll probably say something along the lines of ask, seek, and knock, something like that. Did anybody knock in the parable? No. Nobody knocked in the short story. Uh, did the sleeping man refuse the request? No, we shouldn't read that either. He responds to the request, but he doesn't necessarily refuse it. He's like, what are you doing? I'm asleep. He doesn't say no. We shouldn't read that either. Should we read um, that the man comes back again and again and again with persistence and says over and over? No, that didn't happen in the story either. The story is not about um, how we ask, if that makes sense. It's not designed to make us learn something about how we should nag God. It's designed to tell us something about God. It's not about us. It's designed to make us think about God, something new about him and how he operates within the kingdom. Here's the point of the short story. God is eager to answer your prayers. That's the point. God is eager to answer your prayers. Here's, here's what my dilemma is. It's not that I don't pray. Um, I do pray. Not as much as I should probably, but I do pray. Um, my, my, my dilemma is not that I don't pray. It's that sometimes I come to prayer with the wrong attitudes towards God. I sometimes pray thinking that God doesn't want to do something for me. And so I feel like it's my job to convince God, no, you really want to grant this request. No, 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 no I, I understand. 
it, maybe not, maybe it's not in your will, but I want you to do it for me, please. And I give like God the sad eyes or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it's my job to convince him or whatever that that's what I'm supposed to be doing through prayer. And I'm supposed to be bending him to my will. Now, when this happens, I think that we're in danger of living a false narrative of what praying is all about. We'll miss the true meaning of prayer. Maybe we've been mistakenly taught or we've mistakenly read passages like this. And what we think we're supposed to do is we're supposed to wear God out with prayer. We're supposed to beat him down in prayer, bombard him enough with enough words. And then finally, he'll just be like, oh, my gosh, just stop talking to me, please. Like, I've had enough of you. Just I'll grant you your request. Wow. So much talking. Just, yes, you can have whatever you want. Leave me alone for a while. I think some of us approach prayer that way. If we're just persistent enough, then we'll get what we want. Let me ask you, though, when you pray, do you feel like you are trying to convince God to do something he doesn't want to do? This is an important assessment question this morning. When I pray, is it me trying to convince God to do something he doesn't want to do? If so, then I think that we are in danger of having an improper view of God when we come to him in prayer. We want him to do something that he knows that's better for us not to have or better for us not to receive. God knows the fuller picture than we understand. And I think that if we view parables like this, not understanding what they're trying to say, then we'll walk away um, misapplying the text and living in a certain way, trying to convince God of our needs when he already knows them in the first place. So I've got a couple uh, thoughts from this parable. What is your opinion of God? As a follower of, of Christ, as a disciple, you have to be cautious not to approach God with a fundamental mis misunderstanding of who he is. Because you have a relationship with him and you need to understand what that relationship is like and how God relates back to us. Because if we have an improper understanding, then I can't grow the relationship past my understanding. And you know that to be true in your own lives, in your marriages, in your friendships. If we have an improper view of our friendships, of our marriages, then we can only grow up to a point in those relationships. We won't ever get past that point because we can't hurdle the thing that we've misunderstood about the other person's viewpoint or whatever it is. So what is your opinion of God? Do you see him as, I don't know, maybe an angry legalistic rule enforcer? Do you see him as, one who stands ready to punish his children as soon as they step out of line. As soon as you do something wrong, God is going to stop blessing you as if that's at all what the Bible teaches anywhere. I mean, Job says it, um, that the rain falls on both the wicked and the righteous. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. The whole of the Bible talks all over about how God loves all people. It's not just about if you're doing the right things or... Or, or if you follow this particular equation, then God has to like me. If I'm righteous and wise, then God will have to like me and he'll have to grant my request. Is that how we view God? Whereas if we just do the right things for him because he's such a rule enforcer, then he has to do what I want him to do. Do you think that we have to be such a, a good suck up to God with our good behavior that, that he'll be kind and generous towards us? I don't think that that's the right view of God. Likewise, the opposite end of that, I shouldn't be scared to bring my request to God. 
I shouldn't be afraid to approach him, to come before him. Because just as it is improper to view God as a rule enforcer, it's also improper to view God as one who doesn't want to hear from me at all or doesn't care about what I do in life, period. It's just it's just as bad on both sides because God does want to hear from you. God is eager to answer your prayers. So the parable really isn't about how we should pray as much as it is about your attitude when you approach God in prayer. Let me ask another question, another good assessment question. Is prayer a way to manipulate God? Hmm. Interesting question, interesting idea. See, prayer is not a, a tool to manipulate or a, a technique to manipulate God to get him to do what I want him to do. Prayer is not about convincing God or wearing him down with your words. Prayer is not a magic incantation where if I say these certain words in a certain form, in a certain sequence, for a certain number of times, then I've trapped God and now he has to do what I want him to do. That's paganism. That's witchcraft. I, I don't know how else to say it. That's, that's completely opposite of what we're supposed to be. In fact, Jesus says it himself in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep babbling on like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. We see that in the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. They're out there all day doing crazy stuff, praying. I think they start cutting themselves, start self-mutilating to try and get Baal to respond in this moment, and he doesn't. We're not supposed to be like pagans who are worshiping false gods who with their amounts of words can try and force a solution that's not there. Why not 10 Hail Marys? Or sorry, why not nine? Is I mean, it, why is 10 the number? Why, why won't two suffice? Why, why, why 10 our fathers? Aren't five enough or, or nine enough? James 5 16 really strikes at the heart of this idea. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The Greek word for effective is energeo. means efficient try to manipulate him because they're aligned with his will rather than trying to impose my will. Prayer is not a tool to bend God to what I want him to do. It's a, now listen, if I have something that I want done, I can ask humbly and I can wait for God's response, but it's not me telling God what he should or shouldn't be doing. Through prayer, I'm having a conversation with God and he is supposed to be leading me towards submission to him, not the other way around. So I have another assessment question. Am I focused on doing what God wants or am I focused on getting God to do what I want? This is an important way uh, to assess your own attitudes and your motivations when you come to prayer in the first place. We have to examine ourselves to see if we have the wrong attitude towards God. An attitude that assumes something about God which is not true. See, God is not slow or dispassionate about caring about you. And I don't know if you need to hear that this morning. God is not slow or dispassionate about caring about you. He does care about you. Now, we're not trying to make the Bible or God be all about you. That's, that's not what we're trying to say this morning. But the text clearly says, 
The text clearly says that God loves you. And how much more will he respond to your prayers than even your friend would when you're being shameless and audacious and all those things? God is eager to answer your prayers. He is willing to bless you as long as it's in line with his will and as long as it's in line with his plans for the growth of the kingdom. Let's go back to this how much more uh, pattern idea. Because I want to make sure that you understand where the parable is headed, where the short story is trying to lead us. Now, we often look into parables and try to place ourselves in the story. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. We we, want to know how to apply scripture into our own lives. Absolutely. But I think that we want to place God here and us here. And I think we're tempted to look into parables like this and decide that God is the sleeper. And we're the person that shows up and is, you know, no one knocked, but you get what I'm saying, is yelling at the the friend. And God is the one that's sleeping. The parable is not telling you to go and do likewise. The parable is not telling you to be the friend who shows up shamelessly in the middle of the night and is yelling at his other friend. God is not the sleeper. God is so much more giving than any other human could possibly be. If a human friend would do lesser, then God will do so much more. And and to demonstrate that this really is the how much more pattern here, I'm going to read on um, in verses 9 through 12 and on into 13 because context matters. When I take parables or short stories or verses out of context and don't read the larger literary context, the other verses and chapters, I'm liable to miss the point. This is why in our in our study we need to know the context, not only the literary context of the Bible, absolutely, but also the historical and cultural context. It's going to get me closer to the point of the story. Let's read on to make sure that we're following the how much more pattern here. Luke eleven nine through twelve. So I, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Beautiful verses. Beautiful verses. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? (laughs) It's kind of been interesting. (laughs) I don't know that I've ever had a snake to give anybody, but anyways, nor do my kids ask for fish. Um, Yeah. Uh, Or if he has an egg, will give him a scorpion. Again, I'm not going anywhere near scorpions, but you get what Jesus is trying to say right here. He's saying our earthly father, let me read it. Actually, I won't tell you. Let me, let me read it. Verse 13. If then, though you are evil, uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Does God regard your prayers? Absolutely, he does. Absolutely, he does. Prayer is so vital. It's so important. And God does regard them. And we know that because later on in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Not with timidness, not with overconfidence, not with conceit. Neither of those are appropriate. With humility, but also knowing that God does listen. He does hear. He does want to respond so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Does God answer our prayers because we are so awesome? (laughs) I mean, it's a joke. You, You get it. No, not because we're so awesome. Absolutely not. Does God answer our prayers because 
of the superior articulation of our requests? No, of course not. Just because I say it more eloquently. In fact, Jesus gets onto the Pharisees about this. He says, you shouldn't be out here voicing all of these wonderfully worded prayers. You should be in your closet praying because you're receiving honor from men, but not from God because you're doing it with a false pretense, not with a true heart to communicate with me. No, our superior uh, articulation of the re- of the requests of God are not going to motivate him necessarily to respond in prayer. Okay, let's flip these questions. Or does God respond to prayers because he's so awesome? Now I think we're getting closer to the heart. Now I think we're getting closer to what God is all about. Or does God answer our prayers because he loves us so deeply and cares for us so passionately? I think so. And that's why Jesus says things like, listen, your friend will will meet your request. You as fathers who, who are evil people, who are sinners, can give them good gifts. How much more does God want to do that for you? Now, listen, that doesn't mean we should blow that teaching out of proportion and say, okay, Lord, I've always wanted my Corvette. I've always wanted uh, a private jet and a yacht to go. That's not what we're trying to say either. Because again, we have to align our prayers with what God thinks about. We have to align our prayers with what God is about. We have to align our wills and our motivations with what God is about. God isn't necessarily motivated to grant you a Corvette. Maybe he is, but probably not for most of us. God isn't necessarily motivated to give you a yacht. What he is motivated uh, to give you and to do for you is to grant you the fruit of the spirit in his own presence in your heart. What he is motivated to grant and do for you is to give you supernatural power to share the gospel with your friends and coworkers and neighbors. What he is motivated to do is to spread the kingdom of God as you become a mini temple, as you become a mini hotspot of his presence on earth, as you bear forward his image all over your world, wherever you go. That is what God is motivated towards. We know that because of the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples, not go therefore and buy a bunch of Corvettes because I'm going to bless you financially. That's not necessarily what God is saying. It's not always what he's about to give financial blessing. Sometimes financial blessing, absolutely. But the real blessing that the Bible is talking about is not necessarily financial, although it can be. The real blessing is God himself. The real blessing, the real things that the prophets and the church fathers and Jesus himself all tell us the real blessing is God himself indwelling you, being a part of your life, being in your heart, manifesting himself in you and you going out to make him real throughout the whole world. So here's our application for the week. Pray the way God thinks. Pray the way that God thinks. We know that if we ask God for something in humility, and with a love for him and a a motivation and desire to love and serve him, that he will want to promote his kingdom throughout the earth. God is going to grant those requests. Maybe not in a way we think it should happen, but still in a way that he deems necessary for both our growth and the growth of his kingdom. John 16, 24 says it this way. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Listen, this is not prosperity teaching. It's the opposite end of it. But what do we do with verses like this? How do we handle 
verses about God wanting to bless us as we bless the world through the spreading of his kingdom. And that's the whole point. It's not about getting material blessings. It's about receiving God's own spirit and amplifying it wherever I go. We also know that if we ask to be the greatest of something or the most famous or the most richest or the most whatever in something, God knows better than we do in those moments. He knows that those things might be harmful to us, might be harmful to others, or might be harmful to our growth with God and the growth of his kingdom if we just get all the things that we want. James even talks about this in James chapter 4, verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive. Wait, I thought I was supposed to ask and then I would receive. Isn't that what this is all about? Hold on. When you ask, you do not receive because you are asking with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. See, the effective and powerful prayer is one that aligns with God's heart, aligns with God's mind. So if we want to be extremely successful in prayer, then this is how we have to approach prayer. Pray the way God thinks. And the only way that we can know what God thinks is through his word. The only way that we can know what God is like is through his word. Obviously, we can pray and we can and we can know about his character through prayer and we can feel his presence and his peace and his love. Absolutely. But the truth of God's word will always override what we feel or it should. We always need to check our feelings against the truth of God's word, because if in a moment I feel like God is telling me to do something anti-biblical, it's not from him. It's from somewhere else. So I have to pray the way that God thinks. So this morning, we need to assess ourselves. We need to assess how I pray, how I approach God. What are my motivations in prayer? Am I trying to bend God to my will? Or am I just throwing out a request because I don't really think he's going to answer anything and I'm just throwing something up to the sky? Or should I approach God like he showed us in the parable? Even if your friend who doesn't really want to answer your request, will answer your request. And even though you're a father who knows how to give good gifts, even though you're evil, God will do so much more and so much greater than we can ever expect. As long as we are aligned with his heart, aligned with his mind. God wants to help you along in his mission. And it's your mission too. We're supposed to adopt that mission which is to make disciples who make disciples. We are supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and he will bless us and move us into that space with supernatural power as the Holy Spirit moves within our hearts and our minds. I was thinking about this as I was thinking about this prayer uh, parable and how to kind of wrap this idea up. The times in my life where I felt God speaking to me the most, it's because I was asking for it. Now, that's not a perfect equation. Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus. He wasn't looking for Jesus. And Jesus, boom, shows up in a great light and messes with him. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like mess, Paul, why are you why are you kicking against me? Why? I mean, I you were supposed to be after me, not, not trying to persecute the church. You're supposed to be after me. I mean, there's moments where we're not looking for God and he shows up anyways. Certainly that's what we see in the incarnation. Nobody was looking for Jesus, yet he shows up. Certainly that's what we understand about God is that he's the, he's the one who goes out of his way to bless it and, and offer himself to us. 
But I find that in my own prayer life, when I'm seeking God humbly, when I'm approaching him with confidence that he hears me, when I am motivated by a sense of love and obedience for him, that's when I hear God the most. And I don't hear audible voices. It's not like the heavens open up and a dove descends and says, David, you know what I'm saying? It's not like that. I don't know where we get that picture from, why it's supposed to be that way. Uh, here's how God talks to me or speaks to me. He nudges me in areas. He, he pushes me with, a, with an inclination or a thought that I wouldn't have had before. Or maybe it's a thought that I forgot to think about in regards to what he's like and how I should be living. Whatever God does, it's always going to align with his word. I've always found that to be true. It's always going to align with truth. And it's always going to resonate with how it benefits me as far as my relationship with God and how it's going to benefit others as I pursue God towards them. Now, I've told the youth this before. I think one of the things that we should be praying is not God speak to me in a booming voice, but rather God speak to me in ways that I'll perceive. God speak to me, show me things in ways that I will understand. Because there's loads of things that God might do in your life, circumstances that he might align or arrange or whatever, that we might miss if we're not looking for those moments. God does want to answer your prayers. God is eager to speak to you and work in you and through you. Are we ready to hear from him? Are we ready to actually listen and to perceive what he's trying to do in both our hearts and in our lives and in the lives of others as we impact them for the gospel? Prayer is not about changing the unchangeable God. <laughs> he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Prayer is not, uh, prayer is not about that. Prayer is about changing our thinking and our desires to match God's thinking and his desires. So here's the last assessment question. When it comes to prayer, who needs to change? God or me? Let's bow our heads in prayer as we, as we finish our time together this morning. Let's pray and ask God to move in us. Let's pray and ask specifically how he will speak to us and show us in ways that we'll understand. Because when he shows us stuff like that, like you want to do a backflip. Now, I could never do a backflip, but I want to in the moments where I feel God's presence moving in my life. Absolutely. And so let's be in prayer for those specific things this week. Father, thank you that you are eager to answer our prayers. Thank you for this parable that shows us that, that even when a, a friend who can't believe the other friend's behavior would grant the request, how much more will you do that for us? I'm praying this week specifically, God, that you would speak to me in a way that I would perceive, that you would speak to me in a way that I would understand. It may be completely unique to the way that you've spoken to somebody else this week, but I'm asking you to speak to me, to my particular personality and my particular history. I want you to speak to me this week and show me what I should be doing as I bear your image uh, in the world, moving your kingdom forward. Father, I pray that you would bless us, absolutely bless us financially, but even more than that, bless us with your presence and with your spirit as we come to your throne room with confidence, knowing that you will answer us, knowing that you hear us, that you aren't trying to throw lightning bolts at us because we've done wrong things, not trying to impress you with our good actions, but instead knowing that we could never be holy like you were holy, we come before you humbly, knowing that you'll transform us as we do that. 
Father, I pray for our motivations this week, that we'd be motivated out of a sense of love and a sense of, uh, of a desire to obey you and to do what your word calls us to do. And I'm praying this week that we would be mindful of our own prayer life, that we would be mindful in the moments where we need to praise you, we need to thank you, as well as the moments that we need to approach you and ask for the things that we need. And I'm praying this week that we would maybe look back again at the Sermon on the Mount and we would see the, the, the Lord's Prayer, not only as a format, but maybe the very words that we need to start calling out, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want your uh, will and presence to be coming out of us and become a reality wherever we go. Father, grant us um, uh, extra portions of the Holy Spirit this week. Move us out of our shells, out of our spaces, and help us to impact the world where we are to make disciples right now. That looks like influencing people through the relationships that we build, through the service that we provide, and through the care that we give. Help us to be mindful of the people around us this week and help us to impact them for the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.